Well, beginning this morning and continuing over the next six Sundays, our worship will focus on imagining our future as a congregation. Each Sunday, a member of our congregation will offer a testimony of sorts, an expression of hopes and dreams for our congregation, just as Mary Lou did this morning. The purpose is to hear from sisters and brothers what they believe God is up to among us and where God is taking us and what we might look like when we get there. I suspect there'll be a wide variety of futures to choose from when all is said and done, a variety of complementary and conflicting ideas of what we will be like some years hence, each one reflecting the peculiarities of the individual testimony. And that's okay. In fact, the diversity will only enhance the experience, providing as it does not only an awareness of the myriad ways God speaks to us as a congregation, but also a glimpse into the hope that is held by individual members of our congregation. And when we see that hope, I believe we catch a glimpse into the heart of the one offering the testimony. And so I invite you to listen closely to each testimony and to receive it not only as a vision for our congregation, but also as a gift from a sister or brother, a gift that reveals something about the giver. I invite us to listen to these testimonies with a degree of reverence, not in the sense of treating them as holy scripture or as revelation, uh, but to hear, from, uh, to hear them for what I believe they are, that is, acts of holy imagination, formed not of whole cloth, but of a love for our congregation and a sense of the Spirit's leading and a hope for us as a part of Christ's body, all woven together. In the best Anabaptist sense, let us hear from our sisters and brothers and listen for the voice of the Spirit speaking through them. I invite us, too, to listen to these testimonies in a spirit of play, not in the sense of treating them as silly or childish, but in the sense of holding them lightly and recognizing them for the dreams that they are. In planning these services, Rebecca, Titus, and I did not ask folks to prepare programmatic outlines and step-by-step -step processes for getting us from here to there. We asked for nothing so solid and heavy as that. Instead, we asked folks to dream. Uh, to imagine, to wonder what we will be like some years from now, and to imagine the best possible future for our congregation according to their own peculiar hopes and desires. So let's listen with an awareness that while there may be substantial and concrete ideas for what East Chestnut Street might be or ought to be like in the future, the testimonies are being offered to us as dreams, not programs. And finally, I invite us to listen to these testimonies with an awareness of what they stir up within us. What strikes a chord in our own spirits? What excites us or makes us wistful or inspires us? What makes us want to jump up and say yes? What makes us afraid? What challenges us or raises uneasiness within us or makes us question? What makes us want to say no or maybe not yet? What do we hear that's brand new? or maybe a bit aslant from the way we ordinarily see or imagine things? What catches us by surprise or catches us off guard? What do we hear in these various visions which opens up a new way of thinking about our congregation? And then there are the deeper questions to ponder. What do we hear that sounds like it may be the voice of the Spirit speaking? What do we hear that we want to file away for future reference? What do we hear that deserves some serious discernment? What do we hear that seems like it may be an invitation from God to listen and think and pray some more? What might be an invitation to us as individuals 
And what might be an invitation to us as a congregation? One of the motivations driving these seven weeks of holy imagination is a belief that our future is not something we need to or should walk into blindly or unthinkingly. I believe that while we cannot predict the future or predetermine outcomes, we can be intentional in moving towards something. And that intentionality, I believe, includes actively imagining where it is we want to go and how we want to get there and what we want to be like and act like and look like when we arrive. And that imagining is rooted, I believe, in hope. And that hope has, I believe, a specific content which then shapes our imagining and so guides us as we move toward the future. As followers of Jesus, the content of our hope is that God created the world and everything in it, and that God loves all that God created, and that God is determined to redeem that creation, and that God is set about that redemption by the sending of Jesus Christ to seek and to save all that is lost, and that Christ offered his own body for the sake of that salvation, and that God vindicated Christ and raised Christ from the dead, and so made clear once and for all that in the end death has been overcome, And so the end of history is in Christ. That's our hope as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's from that hope that we imagine ourselves into the future. And we do so with a kind of humble confidence, trusting that as we read the scriptures together and with the guidance of the promised Holy Spirit, we can discern the movement of God's saving hand in the world and can catch some idea of the direction that God is moving and so can align ourselves or can be aligned in such a way as to be moving in step with God toward the redeeming of all things. Together, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can discern the future and do our best to move in that direction, trusting that God will not leave us to our own devices, but will be faithful in guiding us and correcting us and ultimately bringing us all the way home. The testimonies that we will hear, in other words, are not created from nothing. Rather, they spring from this very specific ground of hope. This does not mean that they will all sound the same. In fact, given God's love of diversity and color, it would be surprising if they do not vary widely. But I do think they will all tend in a similar direction, toward a redeemed church and a redeemed world and the future that we proclaim is already in Christ And that future is revealed by the multitude of images and metaphors and descriptors that we find in Scripture is not monochromatic. It is instead, I believe, a glorious mix of every good gift imaginable. So, I think, there's plenty of room for this dreaming. The preacher's task for this series is to consider what the Scripture reading for a given Sunday tells us about God's intentions. What do we see of God's hand in the biblical story? What do we learn of Christ? What is the good news? What do we discern regarding where God is taking us? What do we learn about how God is getting us there? What do we discover about our role in all of that intending and taking and getting? What does the text tell us about our next steps? And so on. In other words, the preacher's assignment is to offer some consideration to the context of our hope as we see it revealed in the text in front of us, and so provide some essential background to the testimonies that we'll be hearing. To place those testimonies in context by revealing the ground from which they spring. And to do that, I hope and pray, 
with a reasonable degree of humility, neither claiming too much nor too little about what we hear the Spirit saying to us as we prepare to preach, and then to offer that to you to test against your own reading, your own sense of what the Spirit is saying, and to do this with the same and to do the same thing with the words of testimony that you will hear from sisters and brothers. So, dear sisters and brothers, over these next seven weeks, you are invited to your own acts of holy imagination. Listen to the scripture. Listen to your sisters and brothers. Listen to the spirit. Listen to your own hearts. And engage in your own acts of holy imagination. Wonder where God is leading us. Imagine how God might get us there. Consider the aspects of the journey that you find daunting. Consider the aspects of the journey that you cannot wait to enter. Consider points of risk, points of danger, and wonder whether God is calling us to avoid such places or is calling us to enter them boldly, and so on, engaging your minds and hearts and voices and spirits as together we spend some extended time imagining ourselves into God's own future. Well, this seems like an especially appropriate Sunday to begin such an adventure in holy imagining. It's Epiphany Sunday, the Sunday when we remember the revealing of Christ to the Gentiles. The Feast of the Epiphany is actually a movable feast located 12 days after Christmas and takes place this year on January 6. But many Christians celebrate Epiphany on the Sunday closest to the actual feast day. And so even though we Mennonites are often um, liturgically careless. On this occasion, we are not alone. With other Christians around the world, on this Sunday, we remember the revealing of Christ to the Gentiles, an event which marks the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, a promise picked up and proclaimed throughout the Old Testament, and now made fact in the coming of the Magi to Bethlehem. For us Gentiles, a most happy day indeed. We know the story well. Although I was surprised and frankly a little embarrassed to discover that there's one crucial piece of the story that I've walked right by for lo these 52 years. Did you know that Matthew never does specify just how many magi there are? This whole three kings of Orient are business is based on the fact that there were three gifts named, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But Matthew does not say that there were three gift givers, three magi, which makes me feel better, actually, because I have this motley assortment of wise men and other crash figures that Mary Luce collected for me over the years when they went on sale at 10,000 Villages. And this year, I decided to go ahead and display the whole glorious congregation, which includes 11, count them, 11 magi. And I thought I was just being goofy, and turns out I was doing some pretty good exegetical work. Go figure. Anyway, we know the story well, um, though clearly not as well as we thought we did. The Magi, however many there were, um, were essentially court magicians, perhaps residing in Babylon, which was apparently a hotbed of such religious and scientific speculation in those days, the kind of place that Jay Parrish, for example, would have loved, um, at least in that regard. They watched the stars and the planets and read from them portents and signs of things to come. Well, our particular collection of magi, however many there were, were well-versed in the lore of their ancestors and knew that certain events had been predicted and could be seen as coming to pass 
by faithful reading of the, st- of the stars. Excuse me. And sure enough, one of those prophecies concerned a future king of the Jews to be born at the rising of a very special star. And so it went. One of them saw such a star one evening, and Magi, let's imagine, like Anabaptists, were careful to check their own readings with their peers before going off on some wild star chase. And so Balthazar consulted with Melchior, who consulted with Gaspar, who recommended taking their findings to the next meeting of the BAM, the Babylonian Association of Magi, scheduled for the following weekend. And this they did, and the gathered magi agreed, with only one objection, there's always at least one objection in any scholarly gathering, to commission a caravan to head off to the west following the star, and they all hoped, discovering the truth of the long foretold coming of the king of the Jews. And so a caravan of unknown numbers was formed, with magi and their assorted minions and assistants and apprentices and servants all duly arranged according to tradition and best magi practices. And so they went toward Jerusalem. Meanwhile, King Herod is sitting in his palace conspiring against somebody, uh, his son or maybe a daughter or a loyal retainer who'd lately gotten too big for his or her britches and so made the king anxious. And, And an anxious King Herod is a murderous King Herod. And so Herod was comforting himself with daydreams of slaughter. Then a servant of the court came and whispered in his paranoid ear that a caravan of indeterminate number was wending its way toward Jerusalem, hot on the trail of a prophecy regarding the birth of the king of the Jews, which did nothing for Herod's digestion and a lot for his anxiety, sending it right through the palace roof. King of the Jews, Herod is king of the Jews. So who's this baby being born? And so Herod called for his own mages and counselors and priests and lawyers and asked them to tell him about this baby foretold by the prophets and going under the altogether alarming name of King of the Jews. And interestingly enough, the gathered wise folks of Herod's court knew exactly what he was talking about and were immediately able to tell him where the baby was to be born. Now we can only wonder why they had not seen fit to tell him this news earlier. Perhaps they valued their heads too much to trouble Herod's with such knowledge. Well, Herod then sent his messengers to interrupt or intercept the caravan of indeterminate number and to invite the Magi to come pay a visit. Herod had some important information regarding their quest, and so the Magi accepted his invitation. And being scientists and theologians, they were an unsuspicious lot and assumed that Herod's intentions were as noble as theirs. So they told him everything they'd learned from their studies of ancient texts and the stars, And Herod gave them directions to Bethlehem and, oh, by the way, invited them to stop again on their way home to enjoy another round of Herod's hospitality and to, oh, let him know what they found there in Bethlehem so that Herod could make his own pilgrimage and so welcome the newborn king and pay him homage. Well, the caravan of indeterminate number continued on to Bethlehem where the star once again appeared and so confirmed that they'd arrived at journey's end. The Magi, perhaps three or six or nine or eleven of them, were overcome with joy. This is exactly the reason why they'd spent all those years in Magi school, after all, for the possibility of being on the scene when an ancient prophecy came to pass. This was everything a mage dreamed about and something that made the long trek worth every discomfort. 
So they called their servants to collect the gifts they brought with them, and they made their way to the house where the baby lay. And when they entered the house, what they saw pushed aside every dream of vocational success, every dream of publishing that piece that would guarantee their legacy. They let all of those material dreams go by the wayside for the sake of worshiping the baby. Then having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. And so that caravan of indeterminate number moved off into the distance and was never heard from again. But I wonder what that long trek home was like for the Magi and for their companions. I confess that I read between the lines a good bit when I suggested that they had abandoned their material ambitions for the sake of worshiping the baby. All Matthew tells us is that they gave the baby gifts and paid him homage. That could simply mean that they showed their respects. Here was the newborn king of the Jews, just as was prophesied, the goal of their expedition. But their homage was the same as what they'd earlier given to old Herod, perhaps. Nothing but the proper response to royalty. After all, what did the king of the Jews really mean to this collection of Babylonian wise men? Perhaps they never thought of him again. Once their papers were written and their report was given to the next meeting of the Babylonian Association of Magi, Maybe once the scholarly debates had ended, maybe what they witnessed in Bethlehem simply faded away, just another story to be told to their grandchildren and apprentices on a cold winter night when the stars were especially clear. Or maybe, and this is admittedly the pious version of the journey back to Babylon, maybe what the Magi saw in Bethlehem kept playing and replaying in their heads as they jounced along on their camels. Maybe they pondered what they'd seen and how they'd reacted and wondered how they'd taken a step away from or been pushed out of their scientific objectivity and fallen on their knees in worship. Maybe they tried to figure out what exactly made them suddenly not detached observers but awestruck worshipers at the feet of a simple Hebrew woman and her baby. Maybe they wondered what to tell their colleagues back home, what to shade and what to reveal, what to nuance and what to say plainly and without explanation or excuse. Maybe they wondered what to say to their families. Maybe they wondered what those few moments on their knees in Bethlehem had to say about their relationship to the king of Babylon or to their continued scientific endeavors or in their relationship to their families and other loved ones. Maybe they wondered how what they'd witnessed would shape their own futures. Maybe. 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 We don't know, of course. We don't know um, how what they saw in Babylon shaped them, or Bethlehem shaped them, if at all. We can only imagine. We can imagine because we know exactly who it was the Magi met that day. We know that the baby was God's own child sent to save the people from their sins, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female alike. We know that the baby whose birth was foretold by prophets and revealed in the heavens was in fact God made flesh. We know that the baby was God's very best expression of God's will and God's love and God's intentions toward our world. We know that God's love and intentions lead inevitably and always toward the redeeming of that world. 
And we know that that redemption includes not only those ancient wise men who knelt there in the house in Bethlehem, but also includes us and everyone in between and everyone yet to be born. We can imagine our own admittedly pious version of events because of what we know about the content of our hope. We can imagine such a response and so much pondering and wondering on the journey from meeting the incarnate one because we have done such pondering and such wondering ourselves. It is, after all, the only reasonable thing to do upon coming face to face with the one who was sent to save us. And indeed, that's precisely what we are about this Sunday and in the six Sundays to follow. Taking stock of what it is that we have seen and what it is that we know as best as we can see and know about the coming of the Christ into the world. And then from there, discerning how what we have seen and what we know has already shaped us. And then from there, discerning together where we think what we have seen and what we know might be leading us. And then from there, imagining what it will be like when we get there, what we will look like, and how God's intentions will be revealed in and through us. And how the whole journey from Bethlehem to that imagined future, how that has formed us and made us more faithful. And even more than that, how it has contributed to what God is doing in the world to bring about the very redeeming, saving, healing work made known to us in the baby in Bethlehem. To imagine the future from the ground of our hope in Jesus Christ. And then together to move in that direction aligning ourselves or being aligned so as to be moving in the direction that God is heading, moving from that light in Bethlehem to the place where God is taking us, engaging in acts of holy imagination as a form of orienteering, using the tools that we've been given, the scripture and our common story, and the wisdom and the brains that God has given us, and with the Holy Spirit looking toward the future, confident, that there we will find exactly what we found in Bethlehem, Christ, the hope of the world, our salvation, our Lord. May God make it so. Amen.